Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 329, The First Ambulance. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Now, every evening in New York for the past few months here, at exactly 7 p.m., the streets throughout the city have sounded a little something like this. This has been a kind of grassroots tribute to the medical and essential workers of New York City who are going out of their way, putting their lives at risk to save the lives of others and keep the city up and running during this truly unprecedented time. So on today's show, I'll be looking at the history of a valuable instrument quite literally on the front lines of the city's health, the ambulance. There are so many different kinds of ambulances today, with the most common being those of the New York City Fire Department Bureau of Emergency Medical Services. But there are also private ambulances of many kinds. In addition, in the last two or three months, to help out New York during the pandemic, there were hundreds of EMTs and paramedics coming in from across the country and over 200 extra ambulances from as far away as Washington State and California. So many of us have heard their sirens for many months that perhaps you've taken the whole concept granted. Like, if something bad happens, no matter what, you'll always be able to call and then at your front door, there'll be an ambulance at the ready, staffed with trained paramedics or EMTs, captained by a driver who knows his or her way around the road. But just that idea is a culmination of several modern concepts, revolutionary strides in medicine, transportation, and communication. The modern ambulance, the ambulance that you know today, was invented in New York City 151 years ago this year. Now, obviously, the concept of an ambulance is as old as humans and war with armies carrying their wounded from battlefields since ancient times. During the French Revolutionary Wars, one of Napoleon's army surgeons, a man named Dominique Jean Larray, 
developed a wartime wounded recovery system, which he called Ambulance Velon, which could quickly rescue the injured from active battlefields. But translating that idea into an urban environment in the mid-19th century is a tricky thing. In fact, let's do this. Let me walk you through an example of what happened to you if you needed medical care in New York City, let's say around uh, the 1850s sometime. So let's say you're some ruffian, 'er ne'er-do-well, up to no good, on the Bowery, just picking fights with people, drinking like a fish. You're in a stale beer dive, and you start something with the wrong guy. Maybe he caught you pickpocketing his gold watch, or maybe he just didn't like the cut of your jib. And all of a sudden, he stabs you right in the gut. You scream, everyone in the bar screams, the music stops, and you stumble out onto the Bowery. You're bleeding, fall into the street, crying for help. So what happens next? Well, if this were the year 2020, somebody would have called 911, and given the circumstances, an ambulance might be there in 15 to 20 minutes to take you to an emergency room. But what happens in, say, the year 1859? Well, first of all, there would be a question of whether you should be taken to a hospital at all. Most people then would probably say no. During the 18th century, many considered medical care akin to barbarism, mostly because surgical procedures were performed not by trained doctors, but by barber surgeons, just people with blades, uh, cutting hair, extracting teeth, or amputating limbs. Now, of course, while this was many decades in the past, by the time that you're lying here on the Bowery, bleeding in the street, public perceptions of medicine were still mostly negative. Hospitals were associated with the poor and the diseased. Bellevue, considered New York's first hospital, traces its origins to an almshouse from 1736, which tended to all the needs of the city's most destitute. That almshouse expanded into an old estate along the waterfront just outside of the city, an infirmary for those overcome with yellow fever. Hospitals were only for those who needed to be removed from the population because of disease or for those who could not afford care at home. To quote David Oshinsky in his book on Bellevue Hospital, quote, Lacking anesthesia and hysepsis and x-rays, among other modern essentials, the hospital resembled a poorhouse with a vague medical bent. No institutions except the military and the penitentiary seemed as perilous to human health. The wealthy would never think of stepping foot in a hospital. They had access to New York's finest doctors who, by practice, visited the homes of patients and performed surgeries there. And babies were almost never delivered in hospitals until the 20th century. So while you're here on the street bleeding, you also might be thinking cost. If a doctor just happened to walk by you at that moment, he might be able to sew you up without regard to internal injuries, of course, and you would pay him a fee set right then by the doctor and, of course, hardly regulated in any way. If you couldn't negotiate a fee 
up front, you were on your own. But in this case, your fate was in the hands of a police officer. In the mid-19th century, emergency health care was essentially in the hands of the police. Since the days of old Dutch New Amsterdam, when they were referred to as the Night Watch, officers took on a variety of roles in the community. And in this case, one of those roles involved emergency medicine. Now, that's scary for a number of reasons. Keep in mind the volatile nature of the New York Police Department in the 1850s. I won't get into the details on this particular show, but let's just say there was at one point in 1857, two rival police forces battling it out. Given the corrupt nature of the force, officers were often untrained and unsuited for certain responsibilities. And yet keeping cops on the beat at this time was vital to the operation of New York, not just for crime, but for the health of the city. In an era before telecommunication, New Yorkers in traumatic situations first found their beat officer for assistance. For health matters, that officer would then head to the precinct to retrieve a stretcher and then convey that injured party to the precinct. Now, in 1855, if we're setting this example in the 1850s here, thanks to Mayor Fernando Wood, the force had dedicated police surgeons in their employ to tend to the injuries of police officers, but they could also perform a number of limited medical procedures on urgent civilian cases. But a police precinct in the 1850s was a hot mess, obviously, and no place for a medical emergency. Police surgeons kept normal hours, sorry to those with serious injuries late at night. Cops were also not bound by any kind of Hippocratic oath. If they didn't like you for any reason, or they just didn't deem you to be a very serious case, they would leave you on the street to bleed. But for the purposes of our story here, let's assume this beat cop found your condition worthy of attention, and the police surgeon suggested that you be taken to a hospital. Okay, so you really only had two choices in this period. Well, I mean, there were small dispensaries around the city, and then you also had religious-based hospitals like St. Vincent's, which had just opened in the year 1849. But most likely, if you were in this situation, you would have been sent to the aforementioned Bellevue Hospital, which was up on 26th Street along the water's edge, or you may have been sent to New York Hospital, which was the second oldest hospital in New York, tracing its roots to the city's colonial days. And that was located down on Broadway between Worth and Duane Streets. But how did you get there? You may ask, you were thrown into the closest available cart or wagon. There there were no police carriages at this time, okay? You were essentially just pulled down through the streets of Lower Manhattan. The horses galloping down either stone-paved or dirt streets with no amount of protection or comfort from the carriage. There were no sirens. There was no right-of-way. You were at the whim of chaotic horse-drawn traffic. The violent jostling and rocking ensured that any suture or bandaging that had been applied before this were most likely torn away. 
With no trained medical staff at your side, you were on your own, all the way to the doorstep of New York Hospital, which did not have an emergency room. That concept did not exist. But here we are. Hooray. You've made it. We're at the hospital. Unfortunately, you were most likely dead by this point. Medical institutions were more concerned with disease control, chronic illness, and to a lesser degree, mental health. Few professionals were thinking about institutionalized urgent care, accidents, or other kinds of sudden physical trauma, the domain of emergency medicine. Outside of war, such afflictions were not deemed a priority by the medical community, nor really by any influential New Yorker. There was also a class barrier at play here because the wealthy rarely suffered workplace accidents or violence on the street. This attention to critical health emergencies would change during the Civil War. During the war, field surgeons built upon the ideas of this French army surgeon, Dominique Jean Larray, and they developed very effective battlefield care. And part of that involved the creation of a dedicated horse-drawn ambulance wagon, a vehicle actually designed to transport the wounded. The U.S. Ambulance Corps served the Union Army throughout the end of the war. Meanwhile, the Confederates had no such ambulances of any kind. One physician would see the wartime advances and wonder why they couldn't work in a major urban environment. This physician's name was Edward Dalton, and he worked at an institution open to some revolutionary thinking. Edward Dalton was born in 1834 in Lowell, Massachusetts. As a young man, he graduated from the College of Physicians and Surgeons, then interned at Bellevue. But in 1861, he rushed to join the Union Army, becoming a regimental surgeon. By 1863, he was the administrator of several field hospitals, seeing tens of thousands of wounded soldiers from the most devastating battles. Brandished with accolades by no less than Ulysses S. Grant, Dalton returned to New York after the war and was put in charge of the city's efforts to combat a brutal cholera epidemic. Dalton invented a rapid response system to remove any person suspected of having cholera, a highly contagious disease, and easily spread. Dalton's cholera rapid response was a true emergency system, as we might think of it today, and it was only possible because of that great invention perfected by New York professor and inventor Samuel Morse. By 1854, New York's police precincts were all hooked in together by a telegraph. Now, in this rapid response plan of Dalton's, Beat cops 
suspecting a case of cholera, reported it to the precinct, which then telegraphed a central office for the Metropolitan Sanitary District, of which Dalton was in charge. He would then immediately dispatch a sanitation inspector. And if the, the case proved likely for cholera, a special medical wagon with a disinfection team was sent to retrieve the infected patient. Dalton saved the day. The cholera epidemic in New York in the years 1866 and 67 was successfully maintained. The New York County Medical Association later praised him, saying, quote, Never before nor since have measures for the prevention of epidemic cholera been devised so successful in their results. But this got Dalton to thinking, why was this employed only for special emergencies? Why not the everyday ones? Well, back at Bellevue, Dalton was constantly witnessing incidents comparable to a battlefield. Men and women dying in the gutter, the victims of work incidents, traffic accidents, or violent crime. In a city of such progress, why should people die in the street of injuries that could be effectively tended to? This wasn't a completely foreign idea. In 1865, there was one hospital, an institution in Cincinnati, that did begin operating a medical transportation service. But what Dalton was envisioning here was something a little bit more advanced. A moving hospital. Not just a taxi, but a first step in the care process. Maybe the journey to a hospital could actually make things better, not worse. I mean, what a novel idea. And so, on June 4th, 1869, America's first ambulance service went into operation from Bellevue Hospital. The vehicle was designed by a stagecoach company, unusually light and sleek, for a vehicle of this kind, the cabin high enough over the wheels for additional suspension, on springs as cushioned as one could be in such a device during this time. Each ambulance was staffed with a driver, a surgeon, and two horses. Since it needed to always be ready to leave, one horse was harnessed to the chassis at all times, awaiting departure from the stable at a moment's notice. Now, when a police officer discovered an injured New Yorker, the case was immediately reported to the precinct officer, who then telegraphed the precinct next to Bellevue. Later, the telegraph would actually be wired directly into the hospital. Now, while the driver latched the second horse onto the ambulance vehicle here, the surgeon prepared the equipment or what writer Ryan Corbett Bell called, quote, the Victorian equivalent of a portable emergency room. A stretcher, a stomach pump, tourniquets and splints, buckled straps, bandages and sponges, handcuffs, a straitjacket, and a quart of brandy, which I'm assuming was not meant for the ambulance team. Within six minutes, the Bellevue ambulance was on the street, the horses racing through the streets at top speed, having been given the right-of-way over all horse cars on the street except for the fire department and the postal service. 
the clanging of a, a gigantic gong or bell that was operated by the driver's right foot rang through the streets. During emergencies at night, its swinging lantern caught the eye of every pedestrian. From a later eyewitness report in Harper's Magazine, quote, As we swept around the corners and dashed over the crossings, both doctor and driver kept up a sharp cry of warning to the pedestrians, who darted out of the way with haste or nervously retreated to the curb. The surliest car drivers and the most aggressive of truckmen gave us the right of way and pulled up or aside to afford us passage, unquote. Three calls were made on that very first evening of operation. After all, nobody even knew what an ambulance was. But word quickly spread of the machine's usefulness. The first newspaper report that I could find in old papers here of the ambulance's use came from an incident just one day later involving a suicidal man who attempted to drown himself in the East River. But in a macabre twist, it would take a notable and bloody riot to bring attention to this life-saving vehicle. We'll get to the ambulance and the orange riots after this. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. On July 12, 1870, all hell broke loose in Hell's Kitchen during a parade of Irish Protestants who marched up 8th Avenue through Hell's Kitchen and then the Upper West Side to a now forgotten place on 92nd Street called Elm Park. Along the way, the Protestants were cajoled and heckled by the Irish Catholics of the neighborhood. And by the time it got to Elm Park, things got very nasty and violent. From the New York Times, the headline, Bloody Riot, a picnic party of Protestant Irishmen assailed, six mortally wounded. 
quote, The police employed their time in aiding the wounded who were taken to the station house and attended by surgeons and then removed to Bellevue Hospital in ambulances, unquote. Now, they tried this parade again the following year in 1871, this time starting down on 23rd Street, but it did not make it very far. The second Orange Riot led to more bloodshed, with several dozens killed and hundreds wounded. And again, the ambulances were there. The New York Herald, quote, At Bellevue Hospital, the streets of the neighborhood were filled with men, women, and children, many of them impelled by curiosity, but by far the larger number desirous of discovering if any of their friends or relatives were among the list of killed or wounded. Ever and anon would someone put his or her face to the gate and inquire if a father or son or husband or brother had been brought in. The ambulance had more than proved its worth. The 1870 riot was served by two Bellevue ambulances. The 1871 riot, however, there were five ambulances. This work was truly demanding, extremely long shifts, manned by graduates from the Bellevue Training Program. The workload was further heavied by the whims of police precincts, who often telegraphed for ambulances to come pick up people who were just extremely inebriated. Meanwhile, the stables at Bellevue Hospital became an ever larger, more active, and smellier component to hospital life here. The ambulance service's true value was in the lives saved. During the first 18 months of operation, out of thousands of calls, only four patients had died in the ambulance on the way to Bellevue. Looking with longing at this successful experiment was the city of Brooklyn, who were in desperate need of such an operation. From the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1871, under the dramatic headline, quote, Let us no longer add murder to maiming. Wanted. Ambulance for the injured. Quote, no one but an eyewitness can begin to comprehend the suffering to which men, women, and children are subjected when, after the receipt of injury, they are carried to their own home or to a hospital, and fully to appreciate the pain and anguish as they are hurried over rough streets or handled by unskilled hands. Let Brooklyn adopt the ambulance system, which has in New York worked so well and saved so many lives. A petition with 3,000 signatures was delivered to Brooklyn City Council in January of 1872. Brooklyn City Hospital employed its first ambulance the following year. Soon there were, of course, more hospitals in New York, and all of those hospitals got ambulance programs. More ambulances on the streets of Gilded Age New York? Well, that's a good thing, right? Well, the difference was that these places like Presbyterian and St. Vincent's being private hospitals often operated with the bottom line in mind. Patients were billed for medical services, including the use of the ambulance. Dead patients were not likely to pay their bills. Neither were the extremely poor, such as those, say, in the neighborhood of the Lower East Side. Bellevue, meanwhile, was the public hospital. It could, by law, turn no patients away. Thus, the ambulance drivers of other hospitals would evaluate the financial value of an injured person, 
often they would just pick up and drive away. If it was determined in the ambulance that the patient had empty pockets, they were allowed by law to drop that patient off to Bellevue and then drive off. Ambulances often transferred hopeless cases, almost all from the working class, from their own hospitals to the doorstep of Bellevue. To quote again from David Ashinsky, quote, One reformer fumed, Open your books and show me one man of wealth who has ever been transferred. The practice, known today as patient dumping, involved just about every ambulance corps in the city. These hospitals were sending the poor, dying patients to Bellevue in order to lessen their own death rates, pure and simple, unquote. By the early 20th century, we were now in the progressive era, and reformers were taking note of the ambulance. Now, as I mentioned on my show last year on the history of settlement houses, women often led the way in health reforms, especially involving women's health, including childbirth. So it's not surprising to see a pioneering female physician from a Lower East Side health facility Governor Hospital become the first female ambulance surgeon on July 1st, 1903. Her name was Emily Dunning. Governor Hospital? Ambulance? Who is this? And what's the address? Alec, East River, Pier 14. The policeman will be there. Her life was dramatized in the 1952 Hollywood film A Girl in White. Starring June Allison. Can you move your fingers? Hey, lady, this man's arm is bad. Get a doctor! This lady is a doctor. Well, the film is not great, but it gets to the unusual social reality of the emergency worker who must immediately interact closely with strangers in great peril. So it's one thing to have female nurses in hospitals, and quite another seeing a determined woman bending over an injured man in the gutter. Reporters chased after her on her first day and reported her exploits in exactly the tone you might expect from a newspaper in the year 1903. From the Evening World, quote, when the blonde-haired young woman surgeon swung herself into the ambulance beside her patient, the crowd cheered her, and she blushed as prettily as if she'd never heard of a medical diploma. Dunning worked well with the other interns, but certain head physicians, many of them who had worked in ambulances themselves, well, one day they feared that they might have to one day work next to a woman, or... Scandalously, they might even have to report to one. So they petitioned for her removal. Yet by the end of her 18-month tenure, she'd earned their begrudging respect. The times, after all, were changing. First came the telephone and a centralized operator system, which soon allowed calls to be patched into police headquarters. Medical emergencies were seen as the jurisdiction of the New York Police Department, and in 1909, the Board of Ambulance Service was formed, officially placing the entire system under the auspice of the police commissioner. With greater access to telephones into the 20th century, regular citizens could make the calls themselves, leading to an overwhelming increase in communications with hospitals. 
According to the 1921 journal The Telephone Review, quote, Bellevue Hospital in New York City is said to hold the record for the largest number of telephone calls of any public institution in the country. Six operators are on duty, four in the day and two at night, to take care of 20 phone lines. Over 2,500 outside calls a day are received by the hospital, some of which are emergency calls. But of course, the greatest evolution in emergency medicine at the start of the 20th century wasn't in communication or in medicine. It was in transportation. With automobiles now soon taking over the roads, it was time to retire the horses. Now, this was a sanitary decision to make for hospitals whose stables were, in many cases, much larger than their operating rooms. And this transition from horse to automobile, it didn't happen overnight. In fact, even by the late 19th century, some hospitals were experimenting with electric automobile ambulances, actually. But these proved too costly. And the very first gas-guzzling machines were often more filthy than a well-groomed horse. But finally, the position of ambulance horse was finally put to pasture. On March 14, 1924, Jim and Joe, Bellevue's final ambulance horses, were retired to a farm in a tearful ceremony. From the papers the next day, quote, Doctors and nurses in the hospital came down to the yard to say goodbye to the old team. Some now famous surgeons began their careers as interns, rushing about to minor cases in the ambulance drawn by Joe and Jim. Some of the head nurses had gained their reputation through care of prominent patients brought in by the faithful old team. Joe and Jim are to be shipped upstate to the city-owned pastures at Hampton Farms. Their shoes are to be removed at the city stable up there, and the old team are to be given the freedom of the grounds, grazing in the fields until they die. With them, a whole era of hospital service died, the age of the horse. This appeared strongly doubtful as to whether the substitute would prove quite as good. Their driver, John O'Neill, who wept unabashed as the team set off for the clover fields, is adjusting himself to circumstances, however grim. He is going to learn to drive a motor ambulance. By the 1930s, believe it or not, there was a moment in New York City history where the sound of the ambulance siren was actually banned seen or heard, I guess, as a grating and unpleasant nuisance in a metropolis which now has rows of skyscrapers to amplify the sound down city streets. In 1934, several civic organizations formed a noise abatement council demanding the elimination of unnecessary noise and that ambulance noise in particular was, quote, a nuisance on the patient. Now, while this drive does lead to some permanent anti-noise ordinances, ambulance sirens are thankfully brought back to the city in 1935. Even with ambulance services now popping up across the country in hospitals, great and small, it's kind of hard to believe that there is no such thing really as emergency care well into the early 1960s. 
Throughout the United States, most ambulances are operated by private companies. And in most of the country, ambulances are actually just hearses maintained by mortuaries. If that seems a little morbid, keep in mind that hearses are really the only cars on the road equipped to move human bodies horizontally. And in fact, ambulance designs from the 1950s look a lot like hearses, just, you know, more brightly painted. By the 1960s, though, the ambulance is no longer seen as simply a medical transport, but as a critical tool of a medical specialty known as emergency medicine. After World War II, again, after many new war field advances in medical practices and technology, people began going to the hospital more frequently. A collective mental barrier about hospitals had been broken thanks to scientific advances and more effective public health campaigns. During the 1950s, many Americans began receiving health insurance through their employers. Others were using the emergency room as their primary source of health care, not having a regular doctor. In 1965, even more Americans had access to some kind of health care when President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law the Social Security Act amendments, creating the Medicare health insurance program for the elderly and providing affordable health care through Medicaid for those with limited income. The health of the nation was seen as a greater priority by the 1960s, not because of an individual's right to health care at this time, but because it was the nation's national security interest to have a healthier population. And this wasn't just Cold War talk either. One of the leading causes of deaths in America by this time was the automobile. People were getting into life-threatening accidents on highways at greater distances from their homes. So America's emergency response was forced to get better. And then there was the Vietnam War, again advancing emergency medicine through dire circumstance. Among the many innovations brought to the civilian world from the military included aeromedical evacuation, a.k.a. the helicopter ambulance, which first debuted for civilian service in the early 1970s, around the same time that you also had paramedic training and emergency medicine programs at many medical schools in the United States. Now, all you needed in terms of permanently changing public perception was to make the whole field seem sexy. The TV show Emergency debuted on NBC on January 15, 1972, airing for several seasons, and it brought the emergency room and the profession of the paramedic into the American cultural consciousness. According to Paul Bergman of the University of Baltimore Law Review, quote, ample evidence supports a conclusion that the TV show was a primary factor that fueled the legal changes that allowed paramedic services to develop and expand. But New Yorkers didn't need a TV to value their ambulance workers by this point. The ambulance siren was and is a part of the cityscape. 
It's hard to escape its reminder in a city where sound carries, where the ambulance drivers must negotiate down tight streets to get to their urgent destination. By the 1960s, with a spike in accidents and crime, New Yorkers were leaning on the support of ambulance services more than ever. Unfortunately, to call an ambulance by this point, you were dialing zero for operator who patched you on to an emergency service. Meanwhile, everyone was calling that number zero for every possible reason, meaning that a true emergency situation would often not be prioritized. On March 13, 1964, A 28-year-old woman named Kitty Genovese was murdered outside her home in Kew Gardens, Queens. It took an hour for cops to respond, and she actually died on the way to the hospital. Outcry over her murder renewed the urgency for a centralized emergency phone number. Finally, with the assistance of the federal government, in 1968, AT&T chose 911 as the official national emergency number. By the 1970s, New Yorkers not only had a public hospital ambulance service maintained since 1969 by the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, but it also had many fleets of private ambulances, many of which operate to this day. Private ambulances can provide comfort and unique care that a public ambulance might not be equipped to provide. Take, for example, the Hatsala EMS, an emergency service for New York's Hasidic community, which was founded in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in the 1960s. Private fleets can also take the pressure off the public ambulance system by dealing with non-critical emergencies. In 1996, the HHC, the Hospitals and Health Corporation, folded their ambulance service into the New York City Fire Department. Those ambulances are also supported by many volunteer ambulances from many New York private hospitals, creating one of the largest emergency response teams in the world. Even still, in the past few months, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the city has been thankful for the support of those additional teams of paramedics and EMTs from around the country. So if you're in New York tonight and around 7 p.m., you happen to hear your neighbors outside getting up, banging pots, shouting, and generally celebrating the work of our medical heroes, applaud extra loudly, not just for them, but also for Edward Dalton and Emily Dunning, and for Jim and Joe relaxing in their pasture of clover. For some really interesting images of these first ambulances and other historical images of the medical world in the late 19th century, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where you'll find a million other different kinds of stories and articles on New York City history. You can also visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. And a big thank you to everyone who supports 
the Barry Boys podcast on Patreon.com. For just a little donation every month, you are helping us keep the Barry Boys podcast up and running. And we are truly humbled by this support, especially during this time. We, we get it. This is a very hard time. So it's your support means the world for us. And, and in particular, I want to give a very special Bowery Boys thank you to Barbara D. from Manhattan, Jake C. and Laura S. from Brooklyn, and to additional supporters, Dastin A., A. Williamson, A.H.R. Mills, Alex M., Zara M., and Victoria O. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, guess who's coming back to the show next week? So tune in. We have a great subject prepared. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.